the botched execution. Amtrak seems on board for Ohio passenger rail and another week, another challenge to the slots plan. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at CoSide, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Laura Bischoff, Statehouse reporter for the Dayton Daily News, Gil Price, editor of the Columbus Call and Post, Sandy Tice, public relations consultant, and Mark Weaver, Republican strategist. For the first time since 1947, a condemned man in the United States survived an execution attempt. Ramel Broom was scheduled to die this week for raping and killing a 14-year-old girl. But when prison EMTs could not find usable veins after two hours of trying, Governor Strickland stopped the execution. He rescheduled it for Tuesday, but attorneys for Broom are trying to stop or delay the execution. They claim the second attempt would amount to cruel and unusual punishment and thus be unconstitutional. Mark Weaver, you worked on executions as an assistant attorney general in the state of Ohio. How should the state handle this from this point on? Well, it seems to me if we have some belief that the uh, prisoner might have a drug problem that has created the vein problem, we ought to be looking at the veins well ahead of time and finding a solution so it's not all happening while the witnesses are in place and the media and the high drama that what happened. Now, I'm told that they did look the day before, but going forward, they may want to change the regs and have it done um, well, well ahead of the time. I don't think you're going to see this lawsuit go anywhere. The, the United States Supreme Court has ruled that pain in the uh, execution process, either because of an accident or because of the unescapable process of death, is not cruel and unusual punishment. It was just last year they said that. So my guess is this will go forward. You will see Mr. Broom die on Tuesday, which is ironically just about the 25th anniversary of the, the date of his crime. Now they changed the procedure. They put shunts in they tried to put shunts in because they were, they've been past executions that have been delayed because of a problem finding veins. This didn't help in this case, though. And I, I don't think his veins are going to get better in a week. So, you know, they may, um, if they go forward again, I think that they're going to end up, they may have the same problems and they will have a, an even worse public relations problem on their hand. And, um, you know, they, they tried, according to Broom's affidavit, they stuck them 18 times. And that's... That's a lot of poking around. I don't. I don't know if uh, if uh, they're going to be able to fix it ahead of time or or not. And they may be trying to uh, execute him on Tuesday, but on Monday, I understand he's supposed to be giving a deposition about uh, what he experienced. And of course, you know, we're dealing with uh, the public defender's office, which doesn't believe in the death penalty anyway, and which I think is is using this as an opportunity to show kind of the the challenge and the difficulty of, of the system, period. The bottom line is these are EMTs who are trying to do the IV injection and trying to find the veins and qualified people, no doubt, but they don't stick needles in people's arms day in and day out like nurses and doctors And I think that comes to do. another one of the problems, and that is the training of the people who are doing this. This is not the first time we've had problems with this in Ohio. We had another person who was poked 19 times before they finally executed him. So it sounds to me like there's a staff training issue at work here, too. Well, it's also probably time to revisit the entire regulations. This was a political process like everything the government is. Bureaucrats, administrators come up with the rules. Uh, 
number one, it's not even sure that the cocktail of drugs that they use is really the right one. Recently in a conversation I had with a few doctors and an anesthesiologist, they just rattled off several different ways that somebody could be killed with just one drug in a very painless, quick manner, and it was obvious to them uh, and they, what they couldn't understand is why the state was undertaking it a different way, why it was this three-drug cocktail. That needs to be looked at. How we go about somebody who's got vein damage, that needs to be looked at. There are ways to make this happen. It's not a pleasant thing, none of this is, but the important thing is the law says it should be done. The victims, many of them, get closure from this, and the state needs to find a way to do it without all of this uh, drama. If there are if there are that many questions, should it be done in the next five days? Sh or should, they, should the governor say, okay, we're going to stop, we're going to put it on hold again? It was sort of an unofficial moratorium while the, the Kentucky case was being resolved about the, the cocktail down there. Should the governor just say, look, let's, let's wait, let's see if we can adjust the procedure and, and get some more results? Well, after 25 years, another week is not a big deal. Mm -hmm. but, what, but if one of us went into the hospital and they needed to get a, a, a needle into us to help us survive, they'd find a way. It might take more than 16 sticks to do it. And so there's a way to do it, but it's a very high tension moment when everyone's watching. The guards, although very professional, they're nervous. The EMTs are nervous. And so, so the fact that we're waiting another week or two is not a big deal. But what we need to do is look at the regulations from start to finish so that this does not become quite the high drama it's been. I was going to say, you know, at the hospital, though, they have nurses or phlebotomists or whoever, you know, they're used to, to, to drawing blood or putting in IVs. But EMTs and this do is as well. I mean, if you're, if you're picked up by an EMT on the side of the road and you need saline drip, they're going to put a saline drip in for you quick. And mm -hmm. so this, uh, the notion that these are like med students doing it for the first time, that's not true. They might not do it as often as a nurse who is the most common professional to do it, but an EMT is going to be able to stick you and give you a drip between where the accident is in the hospital. It's a fairly regular occurrence. Getting back to the, the appeal, I mean, the, in the Wire story and in the published reports after this execution, the execution, one of the observers or uh, researchers into the death penalty mentioned the case of Willie Francis. He was the man in 1947 who was actually attempted to be ex electrocuted twice. And the Supreme Court, it was a five to four decision, I believe, ruled that he could go, the execution could go forward a second time. Might this case prompt another look at this? And in that case, it was a year-long uh, yeah. delay. I think that this is, this is going to be more than a week delay. I think because of the of the legal challenges, there's three going on. I think the Ohio Supreme Court, the U.S. District Court, and then they've asked for a stay at the Supreme Court. Remember, so the High Court just spoke last year. The notion of pain in the process is not in cruel and unusual punishment. Remember, when the framers wrote the Constitution, this is Constitution Week here in America, when they wrote the Constitution, cruel and unusual punishment um, was written in as a bar in the Eighth Amendment, but the death penalty back then was hanging. And in some countries, it was guillotine. And that's, that was in the minds of the framers. They didn't think those things were cruel and unusual punishment. So the notion of 16 sticks before you get a sedative and, and drift off to sleep, uh, they would have not considered that to be cruel and well, unusual. Well, this court has not decided that uh, actual innocence is a bar to execution. So if, if uh, this court hasn't decided that not, in, that not executing an innocent man is cruel and unusual punishment, I... Well, but the notion that the death penalty appeals trade has had to coin the term actual innocence suggests that nearly every other appeal that's brought is one based for gaming the system. And that's the problem we have in the death penalty appeal system in Ohio. And this guy has not, he's not, no, no, he's no, not, not alleged actual him. innocence. No, I mean, from what I'm I know, not saying about him. he's a very bad man. And, and he's, you know, child rapist and killer. He's sort of society's worst name. No, my only point was that if uh, the Supreme Court is unlikely to uh, necessarily allow him to skate because 
he got st he got staked a few times. Okay, let's get on to our second topic. We now have some hard numbers to begin a cost-benefit analysis of restoring passenger rail service between Ohio's major cities. An Amtrak study released this week shows connecting Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati would cost a half billion dollars to start and 17 million dollars in state tax dollars a year to run. But nearly a half million people would use it, according to Amtrak, to travel the six and a half hours from Cleveland to Cincinnati. Gil Price, will Ohioans think those price tags are worth the cost of a half a million passengers on a train? Well, so far they haven't. And I mean, you know, there, there is a real interest among, you know, some folks, I know among some Democrats in, in this. And, and with the uh, stimulus money and the idea of possible stimulus money for something like this, obviously there's going to be a maintained in interest. But I haven't seen that level of commitment on the part of the voters in Ohio for, you know, this has been talked about for 35 years and we haven't seen anything yeah. approaching support for it yet. So the reality is, you know, you, you know, you don't have, you don't have mass transit. I mean, you can't get mass transit in Columbus, Ohio, let alone going from, uh, from Cincinnati to Cleveland. And if you read that study, it said the trains would be going 79 miles an hour on average, but it said it would take three hours to get from Columbus to Cleveland. If I'm going to ride a train, yeah. I want to be able to get there fast. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with the plan. I know bullet it, trains are cost prohibitive. It's not that they were going to average 79 miles per hour. It was good that they were going to go up to, up to 79 well, right, right. miles an hour first. And then once they get the rails in, maybe they can get to 70 something. And you know what? Most people do 70 something on 71 between Cleveland and Columbus. And so if, if they can get to Columbus faster in their own car, yep. or to Cleveland faster in their own car, they're going to do it. But most I don't see the demand for this. Most people, aren't you, most people aren't using their laptops or reading the newspaper on the way up to Cleveland, which that, is what the rail proponents that, argue. That, that is the big upside is you can actually work on the car or you Train shouldn't car. be using your laptop yeah. while you're driving. There's a greater demand for light rail in an urban area to get people from the outskirts down quickly than there is for these notion of these long trips. But it's kind of a chicken and egg. The rail supporters say we need this first step to get the high-speed trains, which they say, the studies say, will serve a million and a half people, so three times the projected number here, which would be attractive and has been successful up in the New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C. corridor. But Ohio isn't that corridor. I mean, if you look at that corridor, yeah. you're talking about, you know, really, you're talking about a megalopolis, really, that extends, you know, for about a hundred and something miles up the East Coast. I mean, I mean, you're not talking about the same level of density of population or, you know, that you're plus, talking about there. Plus, driving from New York to Boston or, or New York to D.C. is a major headache, whereas driving from Cincinnati to Columbus or Columbus to Cleveland, it's, it's not that big a deal. It's there's not that big a deal at, with gas at two fifty a gallon, but if well, gas goes to 4 bucks a gallon, might it be a different yeah, but story? but how many people are taking trips, uh, you know, th that's again, yeah. that's a better argument for light rail than for long hair rail. What we're, what we're losing here is that when you have somebody else's credit card and you're in the department store, everything looks cool. But someone's got to pay the bill, and the taxpayers are tired of paying the bill for everything, particularly enterprises like Amtrak, which do not pay for themselves. Are these numbers good enough to win the federal stimulus money, do you think? There is 40 other states looking for this money. California is looking for all of it and then some. Um, and their voters have backed it with some bonds, there's, there's I think. There's an $8 billion pot and I think about $105 billion worth of requests. So the competition is pretty steep. And what's interesting is Ohio is only applying for maybe 250 to $400 million, And the price tag now is $500 million. So who's going to front the rest of the capital investment? 
guess the different one of the differences they claim is that this includes the price of the trains, which is nice. Yes, <laughs> those <laughs> are a necessary ingredient. Yes, <laughs> 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 otherwise you're on those little things all the way up to Cleveland. <laughs> exactly. um, so do we see it or not in 2011? No, I don't see it. So. I don't think no. so. I don't think so. All right. 25 bucks a fare, that's not going to do but it. But we'll no. be talking about it on the record next <laughs> year. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of another topic we always seem to talk on Columbus on the record, topic number three, gambling. To use the horse racing metaphor, the track is getting muddier and muddier for Governor Strickland's plan to put slot machines at the state's seven racetracks. More lawsuits were filed this week. One claims the process of approving the slots was flawed. The other, filed by Beulah Park here in Columbus, claims the gambling company Penn National is breaking an agreement not to fight the slots plan. And Laura Bischoff in the Daily New Dayton Daily News this week reported the slots deal includes a $17 million no-bid contract for a slot machine monitoring company. And Laura, there's one other thing. Only two of the seven tracks have actually come up with the $13 million in the licensing fee. Right. Two of them made the deadline and forked over their $13 million each. Uh, there are two others, though, that have indicated that they're going to pay uh, Thistledown up in, in Cleveland and then the Lebanon Raceway over in, in uh, just south of Dayton. They both have sales underway. Um, Thistledown was in bankruptcy and Harrah's is buying them. And Lebanon is getting Delaware North companies to buy a stake in them. So they're, they're saying they're going to pay. They just need a little time to settle the paperwork. But the legal challenges are still out there. You have the casino ballot issue, which we'll get to in a moment. But this is just getting, you know, this, it's like a can of worms. Get, keep pulling things well, out. Once again, right. the bigger picture here is the governor has built this house of cards around this notion of gambling at racetracks, and the cards are full of jokers. Anyone who will talk to you honestly on Capitol Square knows the budget's going to implode because something will go wrong with this racetrack proposal, whether it's other casinos come in and then take revenue away, or they don't, they don't I, every newspaper has said pony up, so I'll say it too. Don't pony up the money to be able to pay this way. There's already independent analysis that how much these licenses have been, or how much they're paying for these licenses is far below market value. So this is going to fall of its own weight. Question is, is that October, November, or December, the legislature is going to be forced to address the budget impact of the fact that this will not work? Well, the question on one level is whether they are, in fact, below market value in the sense. Uh, the estimates, look at Keno, and the estimates for what was going to be raised by Keno, um, they haven't met them. I mean, we haven't met That's them. True. So the question is, you know, the argument of market value means, oh, well, it's presumed it's going to be cer a certain amount of volume of business. We w I wonder if you're going to see that level of volume of business, even if... And if they don't, there's a bigger budget hole, and we're back to where we were earlier this year. Not only that, but the gambling market has really kind of softened in the last um, yeah. 12 to 15 months because of the economy. Uh, people aren't, they're not gambling as much. Um, there are some, some casinos still continue to do very well. There's the one up in Detroit's like practically printing money. Uh, but, the, you know, there's a softening in the market, so you kind of wonder how, y I agree with, with Gil that the, the estimates may not be real solid. Less citizens are gambling. More politicians are gambling on proposals like this, which they think will get them past the next election so they don't have to raise taxes or cut services. And, and I, I think there's another problem, is that you know the idea of a gambling place as printing money is, I think, based on a, a certain amount of scarcity. I mean, obviously, you know, Las Vegas makes money because there aren't that many people, you know, there aren't, you know, it's one place. It was the one place where it was legal. The more you expand the legal aspects of gambling, the more people, the more it's diffused, the, the less opportunity 
there is to make a lot of money from gambling. So how long, is, how long is it going to take for this to play out? I mean, all the, all the court cases go to the Supreme Court, so that speeds up the legal process. We used to have the ballot issue in November with regards to the casinos. When does the governor say, okay, this isn't working, we've got to go back to the state budget? Because as Mark said, the longer he waits, the bigger the hole gets. Any predictions of when this might be finished? I, you know, I think that if, if the Let Ohio Vote case isn't decided fairly soon, I think that's going to cause more uh, investors to be skittish about putting up their money for the, for the licenses. And I think that, you know, that's a big problem for the, for, for the Strickland administration. And I think the court's going to rule quickly. They just ruled on another big tax case this week on the commercial activity tax. And I think part of that, based on the questions we heard in the oral, oral argument, is that the justices, they read the papers, they watch the news, they know that there are serious budget implications to some of the things they're deciding. Okay. Of course, the other wild card in this whole debate is the campaign for and against the casino ballot issue. Those campaigns continue. A new poll shows that most Ohioans support casino gambling, the four casino plan, but that support has weakened slightly. It's weakened just slightly, a couple points since July. Also this week, Truth Pack, the racetrack owners and out-of-state casino operators who oppose this plan have claimed to have proof the casinos would not be taxed on all their revenue. The casino developers say that's not true. Sandy Tice, you're working with this truth pack on mm -hmm. one of the opponents to this plan. First of those poll numbers, weakening support by a couple points. Does that does that worry you as an uh, opponent to this? Uh, no, not at all. Last year, issue six was up with 60-some percent of the vote a month out, and then it, then it ended up getting 38 percent. What has happened in Ohio four times is when people find out what's actually in these things, like this loophole you just talked about, then they vote no. And I think we'll be competitive. The other side will have a lot more money than we do, but I think we'll have enough money to explain some of the tragic flaws with this. They're hammering jobs, jobs, jobs. In this economy with the unemployment rate about 10%, might that push them over the edge this time? I, I don't think it's going to push them over the edge. I mean, you, you talked about this loophole and you talked about Truth Pack being out. I don't remember how you worded it, out-of-state casino developers. There's a <laughs> lot more people in that organization, and one of them is State Representative Lou Blessing. He's not being paid by my side. He's not being paid by their side. And he has supported every past casino gambling initiative that Ohio's ever had. He is opposed to this one because he read the language, and he thinks that if you wager in cash, you will not beat those cash wagers will not include in the taxes that the casinos will pay. And he says this is a fatal flaw in this plan. I don't know whether it was a sneaky drafting or sloppy drafting, but it's in there. And I think people, that's one of the things that's going to help us kill it. Now, the casino developers claim that the slots would be paid out through electronic, you know, sort of debit cards in reverse kind of thing, and then they would be taxed because it's not cash. Yeah, but if you look at the language, it defines the taxable event as when you pay cash for something else. And I think the wording in that is so bad that it's going to be a problem. One of the realities, I think, is that anytime you have something written, you know, uh, a business venture written by one side <laughs> of the business venture, you're going to always have some issues about, you know, how, about what it says and how it's going to operate. And that's what you have when you're dealing with you know, this issue uh, under any circumstances. You know, one side says, here's how we think it ought to be. We're, here's what we think the law ought to be. And then, uh, and, and so it's going to be obviously to their, to their advantage one way or the other. Well, uh, Mark mentioned the, the market value of the licenses. The going rate for a casino, monopoly casino license, according to the experts, is between 300 million and 500 million. Under this plan that was written by the casinos, they would pay 50 million for one of these licenses. Right next door in Illinois, a license just went for over 400 million. So, 
That's another one of the tragic ones. I don't have a, a dog uh, in this fight, so, um, but I can say this. They've done or a, a pony. Or a pony <laughs> in this race, or a, a wheel on this, a ball on the roulette wheel. Chip in the table. I don't have any of those <laughs> metaphors. But I do know this. I've done a lot of state ballot issues in my time. And the more confusion there is for voters, the more likely they will vote no. There is a lot of confusion. I had somebody ask me, are we voting on the slots plan at the racetracks? <laughs> I mean, they don't know what they're voting on. And that's, again, that's that the confusion. Devil, you say. The voters are not quite <laughs> sure what they're voting on. Yeah. You're hanging with the wrong crowd, Mike. Well, you know. But I, I, think I don't gamble, will, though. No, I'm kidding. No, most but what most is, what voters will come in what? without having done yeah. a great deal of homework. Yeah. Voters are smart, but they often come in unprepared. And, and the no vote is the easier vote. So I think you will see these polls tighten. I can't predict a winner. I don't know what's going to come. But I do know that uh, no, a confusion usually results in a no vote. So everyone sort of agrees that at some point we're going to have gambling in Ohio. It's just inevitable. What kind of question would win voters support. If, if more than half support gambling. I, I think it's the question that's never going to get asked, which is where the state government says, you know, we're going to put it out to bid, we're going to get it to be the, the most advantageous to the taxpayers, and they're going to they're gonna push it. And that, I just don't see the General Assembly doing that. So it comes down to the lawmakers' willingness to take that next leap, to have the state control it before state the voters. Well, you know, Ontario did that. Um, the province of Ontario for their casinos in Windsor. Uh, set it up and put it out to bid and they they own it and they uh, they have uh, one of the big casino operators run well, it. But I think it's interesting. I mean, we have not passed a legalized gambling bill since we legalized the lottery and I think I mean charitable bingo and all that stuff in 19 what 74. And so, I mean, that, that says something right there. I mean, yeah. in 1974, you had a constituency. Well, and remember, a rather large constituency. Governor Strickland says that that vote authorized gambling which he's now brought into the racetracks, and, and no reasonable observer thinks that true. That, that's the sort of um, stretchable rubber logic that the governor had to do to get this particular thing passed. But the legislature endorsed that logic. Uh, not the way he wanted them to. They, they were hoping to get a big vote. And the reality is, that, you know, the law is what ultimately what the Supreme Court says it is. And I think the Supreme Court not only reads the, uh, the newspapers, but they read the, uh, the, the budgets, too. Let's get to our last topic real quick. Now that the massive state budget cuts are not in the news every day, Governor Strickland's approval rating is up slightly, two points from July, but still less than 50%. That number could suffer as troubles in his administration continue to bubble to the surface. The latest involves former Public Safety Director Henry Guzman. The Columbus Dispatch reported this week Guzman delayed closing a loophole in state law that allowed thousands of undocumented immigrants to register their cars with an Ohio license plate. Laura Bischoff, lawmakers are already investigating this. Yeah, and I, you know, this is uh, the second thing that uh, came down on, uh, on the negative on Guzman's side, because not only was there this plate story, but he also resigned three days uh, after he finally instituted a better policy, because um, he was button heads with the superintendent of the highway patrol. Um, and I guess the Strickland administration was talking about, you know, finding a place within the administration to keep him. But I, uh, then I, I understand that that's uh, he's decided to um, retire. To leave the state government altogether. Right. Um, this is a big deal, though. Let's let's not uh, let's not forget that the sound you hear right now is the sound of Strickland administration officials hiring white collar criminal defense lawyers. Because this is not the legislatures looking at this. This is the inspector general. And if it turns out 
that there's been records tampering in this, that's a predicate offense to a RICO charge, which is a first-degree felony. This could be in the league of what people call CoinGate from a few years ago, where high-up officials are implicated in doing things that the voters will be very unhappy with. But right now, Strickland has not been linked to any of these. I think the facts, as I've read them, are horrifying because now we know some people have died as a result of this. And in Illinois, the governor of the state went to prison because of a similar uh, scheme that was going on but in there's Illinois. nothing right yet no. that's put Strickland is even knowing anything about Let's it. Let's just bookmark for a and year and from now. And you know, and what's interesting, though, is that for at least four years, the BMV knew that they had a problem with this, and they... They dragged their feet on it, and Guzman was ready to, you know, implement some sort of policy. But then some special interest groups came in and said, "Wait, wait, wait don't do that. It's going to really harm our uh, our business." And that, so he held off for more than a year. So at least four years, though. Yeah, but for that at least at least it four years. administration of Bob Taft, Correct. Though. For at least four years before that, they had been. Well, and and the chips ought to fall wherever they may. Anyone who's involved with this ought to be implicated because these people are driving all around the country and this is a safety issue as well. This was a, this was a great story by the, by the dispatch, like good hard, hard news uh, reporting. But well, I think the difference... We're going to get to our weekly off-the-record comments skill from our panel. Some final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Laura Bischoff, you're up first. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, there will be more problems with the VLTs that come out uh, in the next couple weeks. Okay. I find it interesting, I've been doing some stuff on the Tea Party movement, and I think it's going to be interesting, even in Ohio, to see how close and how related the Tea Party movement becomes to John Kasich as he decides, as he moves forward in his campaign. Okay. Sandy. In honor of my colleague over here who's a Wolverine and I'm a Buckeye, I think we're going to see a huge, huge Woody Hayes type uh, victory for the Buckeyes this weekend. Against Toledo. Against yes, Toledo. yes, against well, that's Toledo. Really <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if she's right. Mark? We'll stay in the sports vein. Uh, the Blue Jackets will see increased attendance this year because they made the playoffs last year. That'll help their bottom line, and they're going to have a much better year. So come out and watch the Blue Jackets. All right. That is Columbus on the record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website. Our question this week, should the state try again to execute Ramel Broom. That's at our website, WOSU.org. You can also check out our Columbus on the Record blog. We have streaming video of an episode of Columbus on the Record you may have missed. But even though Mark Dan does it, I shan't Twitter. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs> <laughs>